see. I just went shopping at Home Depot. You should do the same. This wood, this board, this magnificent poplar is now mine. This wood, this board, this wood, this board, this wood, this magnificent poplar. This this magnificent poplar. Okay, and we're off. Hey, gang. Uh, it's Chapo. We're back again. It's uh, me, Matt, and Felix coming to you as usual. But uh, today we've brought our old friend Jacob Bacharach back, back into the cut, who is here to talk about Hunter Biden's new literary memoir, Beautiful Things, a work of uh, sort of memoir and uh, Proustian reverie that you compare to um, if Christopher Moltisante had adapted a million little things into an FX TV series and then starred in it himself. Yeah, it's got, um, it's got powerful uh, cleaver energy to it uh, <laughs> and powerful um, wannabe adapted for not quite premium cable energy to it. So uh, I, I, of course, found it uh, absolutely delightful um, for exactly those reasons. It's, it's, it's bad in all of the right ways. Who is the capo that he must be loyal loyal to? Uh, it's a little bit hard to tell, uh, I guess. Um, sort of his father and sort of his late brother. Um, and at one point, a, uh, a giant ghostly barn owl that um, <laughs> lies down out of the middle of the night and leads him out of the mountains uh, and out of a, a many week long uh, crack binge. So... There are a sort of a variety of both actual and uh, metaphysical fathers uh, and, and bosses of bosses who, uh, to whom he has to uh, make his bones uh, over the course of a sort of strange narrative of his entire life. Well, uh, before we get to, uh, to Hunter Biden, though, I think we'd be uh, remiss without uh, bringing up the, uh, the Derek Chauvin uh, guilty verdict, uh, guilty on all three counts, probably the, the uh, biggest story uh, in the country right now. Um, I guess like I'll just say it certainly doesn't feel good per se. There's not a whole lot to feel good about in this case, um, but it certainly feels better than what the alternative would have been, uh, despite a kind of sneaking suspicion that this was like sort of the, the entire American government at like the state, local and federal level, um, just throwing this guy into prison to, so they, to forestall like any attempt to stop them from doing the evil that we all know that they're, uh, getting away with day in day out, um, it ju- it just seems like like this guy was you know th- th- this was this was the sacrifice that they were going to have to make to be able to keep running this country. That may be true, but credit where credit's due. Um, Chauvin's attorney, greatest effort of all time in a losing effort, <coughs> uh, reminding the jury what reasonable doubt is during closing arguments, uh, having his entire argument be like, uh, well, he did like he did what like the training told him to do and then at the end being like are we really gonna like put him in prison for making a mistake <laughs> yeah you like you can't put someone in jail for a mistake it's never happened that's why pencils have erasers yeah <laughs> ladies and gentlemen of the jury i'd be lying if i said my client didn't commit murder <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he did a great job there um, were some real it, crackpot like experts that they had testify for the defense as well yeah 
they got a uh, fool's bounty of experts. One of them wasn't. One of them uh, a def- a force specialist from apartheid South Africa. <laughs> no, like yeah. they got some guy who made his bones like covering up the Steve Biko murder or something. Pretty impressive. <laughs> Well, yeah, and actually, it was like someone was just sharing. I just saw it today on Twitter a video of that guy that we talked about last summer when, like, um, like all the protests are really kicking off. This guy, Dave Grossman, who's like the number one motivational lecturer for police departments around the country, and it's a clip of him, like, uh, you know, uh, just just a packed seminar of like Oakley glasses, and he's talking about how when you kill someone, the sex you have with your wife after is like the best sex you could possibly have, and he goes. This job doesn't have many perks, but this is the big one of them is that your your ability to like murder someone and then have like, I don't know, breakup sex with your wife because of how glad you are to be alive or just how invigorated you feel by taking a life. Finally get home at the end of the incident and they all say the best sex I've had in months. Both partners are very invested in some very intense sex. I mean, this is just these people are all psychopaths. It's, I, I feel you know, like the this- fact I feel like the strange thing about that advice is like, um, uh, isn't it isn't it true that aside from perhaps uh, their victims in the community, the person who cops are most likely to kill is their wife? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a strange yeah. Uh, spin on this. Yeah, I shot her, and then I had the best sex of my life. <laughs> How good sex did that cop who who shot the groundhog have? I wonder. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> well, not sex. If you kill an animal, it's like a hand job, but it's a really good hand job. Like your wife gets really viscous spit if she knows that you've killed an animal. I'm pretty sure that I actually was that saw it, it's like hazy in my recollection because I've I've sort of tried to block it out. But but back years ago when I was like working in um, in the performing arts and in theater management, um, which. Uh, uh, we used to have to go to all of these, you know, kind of like uh, venue safety type type of uh, uh, presentations with, you know, like local public safety and uh, homeland security people and so forth. And I, I'm pretty sure I was subjected to a brief presentation, vi- video presentation by that very force expert, um, which was sort of um, implying that you needed to train all of your sort of in-house like rent a cops just as well to go in guns blazing because you know n- nothing is better in uh, a dark auditorium where someone starts shooting than five more people rushing in and starting shooting <laughs> in a pitch black room full of three thousand people i mean jacob come on the, the glenbeck's the christmas sweater wasn't that bad <laughs> well everyone was too anesthetized by that to actually take out their piece mm-hmm. but well i mean it's just uh like i said i mean uh, some of the some of the reactions to the guilty verdict, uh, I'm thinking particularly of Nancy Pelosi in general, was um, like you could not have written a worse public statement to make after after something like this, you know, ex- expressing, you know, uh, gratitude that the correct uh, verdict was reached, but then saying literally looking to the heavens and thanking Thank George, George Floyd for sacrificing his life for justice. Life for justice. But because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous. And it's just like, he was just a regular guy. Like, he wasn't like, the the attempt to make him like, you know, Martin Luther King or something, which is like, the the attempt to wring meaning out of his death is is sort of ghoulish in this context because it's like his his life is the one, is the thing that had meaning. 
and it being taken away in such a callous and a, just sadistic way, the attempt to graft this sort of uplifting narrative on like what is a really like squalid and nasty uh, piece of business in American life is pretty offensive. It's basically like the entire Democratic leadership were just the cast of Party Down Catering at the James Ellis funeral. It's like this great episode of, of Party Down where they they have to cater the funeral of this sort of like prominent um, black civic leader and, and uh, hijinks ensue. But there, there's one part in particular where like one of the characters uh, is behaving like an asshole and is confronted by one of the clients. Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, Jesus, also black. <laughs> Trying to curry favor. <laughs> it's like, I, I just, I, they, they have sort of, uh, like, Pelosi and that gang have just sort of really, you know, gone the extra mile to embrace every uh, possible uh, sort of, like, uh, magical Negro stereotype that you could possibly imagine about, you know, like you said, this poor guy who... This poor victim of this horrible crime to sort of like treat that crime as being a sort of the catalyst for this great national uplift. Or who was the guy who said like now the whole was it Don Lemon who said now the whole world is looking at America no, no, and yeah, 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 just yeah. how how great it was, we it was, are. I was I was I was watching CNN right before the verdict happened, and like he wasn't saying this of the verdict. He was saying to like in preparation for whatever the verdict may be. He was saying, you know the rest of the world looks to America as a beacon of democracy. And when they see videos like that, it just doesn't make sense to them. <laughs> and what I was thinking about that is like, I think maybe the year 2000 was like the last time you could drop a ridiculous canard like that, but with, 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 with any like shred of credibility about like what this, for whatever this country may or may not be like, maybe you could get away with thinking that like, Oh, like, yeah, other people look to America, like a nice sort of, it's the most powerful country in the world. And it's also a democracy. Isn't that nice? But, you know, 20 plus years on, it's just is really, really stretching it uh, for Don Lemon to drop that one on air. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just uh, it, it's, it's hard to know what to say here. I mean, what, what, what do we make of I mean, Felix, you made the point that uh, Biden actually did, I, I think, showed a bit of presidential leadership by like basically prejudicing the jury in this case because they weren't sequestered. And he just said before the, the verdict came down that it should be guilty, which is like yeah, an, ad, no, an admirable I'm, use of executive authority, in my opinion. Good. No, good move by Mac. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 to stop them from having to deal with stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's a he's he's balling out. Yeah. He's, well, he's pulling I mean, all like, the all the levers he needs to. I will. Yeah. Mac's still a bad person, obviously. But like we've really seen like the extent of his wily tricks, his Irish German tricks um, like this like publicly pressuring the jury which like smart move agree with it you have uh oh there's a border crisis don't worry i'll send kamala there like within what a week of him saying that he's going to run for a second term p to transportation to propose the least popular tax ideas joe keeps his enemies close it's true he's, he may not know where he is but he still remembers all his tricks from his life do you think that he was the one who set up Pete with the the uh, uh, the sting photo shoot of taking the bike out of the back of the, of the SUV and hopping on? If if Joe set that up personally, I, my respect for him has gone up by three or four notches. Yeah, it may be Joe, and it may just be like Doctor Jill, Edith Wilson, but <laughs> someone's 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 pulling some delightful tricks. <laughs> 
Well, Jacob, I mean, now like you know, several months since the Biden administration, what do you what do you make of Biden so far? I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of. I think there's like there's a little bit of this what feels like a very pre-formatted narrative about how he's the most progressive president in American history or like this is this is FDR part two. And like there are certain ways in which you can compare him to Obama's first months in office that is a favorable contrast for Joe Biden. But like what do you, what do you make of like Joe Biden's first months in office so far? Um, So far, he's I I guess, you know, hate to say it, so far he's been the best president of my lifetime, but that's less a compliment on Joe or even what he believes, which is nothing, and more a commentary on how dire it's been for the, really the last 50 or 60 years. Um, yeah, he's far, far better than Obama was at this point um, because the bar for the minimum you need to do to hold on to the executive branch forever has raised slightly with the deterioration of conditions. That said, anyone who wants to, you know, make him to be this great progressive president, explain any difference between the Blinken and Pompeo State Department, which to me is the biggest problem right now. Tony, Tony is more spelt, so... Yeah. On a purely aesthetic level, I guess the, the Blinken State Department is is preferable. Yeah, but, it's, no, a, I mean, it's a salad and not crazy bread department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're eating they're eating uh, healthy wraps instead of um, Panera bread soup bowls. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I kind of I I think I largely agree with that assessment. I think on on foreign policy they've been um, pretty horrible. I mean. The border, the, I, God, I almost said border crisis, which is just like the most preposterous term because it's just it's such a manufactured crisis. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's but, a completely made up. I mean, it's, it's there is a crisis, but like it's entirely the result of like a U.S. policy. I mean, there could you know, be like the, not a crisis tomorrow. Yeah, you know, that that, that has been really dispiriting. Um, their complete um, inability to well, inability, unwillingness uh, to do anything sensible regarding uh, Iran and their their just continuous mouthing of this like sort of preposterous position that um, that the Iranians are the ones who need to do something to restart um, the joint protocol, even though we were the ones who um, uh, took our cocaine and left the party early, you know, it's just horrible and and preposterous. But um, yeah, you know, domestically, I think that um, structural circumstances more than anything else have just forced them to to uh, attempt at least something uh, somewhat more aggressive in terms of providing a kind of um, popular cash infusion to individuals and some kind of basic, um, you know, job and workplace protections, even though they're grossly inadequate to the crisis at hand, they're nevertheless more than we would have gotten in the absence of a massive global pandemic. And so, like, by that measure, sure, I, I guess you could say he's the most progressive president in, you know, the last 50 or 60 years. But I think that just demonstrates that, that you know, presidents and presidencies are victims or creations of the material circumstances in which they are constituted, uh, as much as it's a demonstration of anything in particular about Joe Biden as a person or as a leader. Yeah, that's, that, that is totally... Secondary things. He he is doing more because the conditions are worse because they can't get away with doing what they did last time because 
not only is the crisis right now on the scale of, of 2008, uh, it's also after 2008 happened. So it's in a context where the, the horrible damage that was never undone from uh, the 2008 crash is the baseline that everything is falling from. And so in that case, you, you uh, uh, just to maintain baseline stability, uh, it requires a greater degree of intervention. But that's the determiner. It's not any of the uh, opinions or, or will to pol- political power of anyone in, in office. And it sure as hell isn't anyone from below demanding it. And, well, and let me, and I think, Matt, you know, the other thing is that not only is it not 2008, and as you say, it, it flows out of 2008, they already saved the financial system, right? They already foamed the what runway, in the immortal yeah. words of, of, of Timothy Geithner. And, and as a consequence, you know, we now find ourselves, you know, whether you consider it to be entirely a bubble or not, and I, I think uh, certainly we're living within in an, in an, in an asset, in an equity asset bubble, and I, I think there are there are other worrying signs, but for, for whatever other reason, you know, the sort of uh, financial economy is humming right along. You know, the banks are doing quite well. The, the, the equity markets are doing quite well. The, the bond markets are fine, you know. Um, so the people who, who got bailed out the last time simply don't need it this time because the crisis is occurring elsewhere. And so, you know, again, the, the conditions are sort of just dictating that there, there's just there's no reason to shovel more money into Wall Street. I mean, indirectly, they're doing that anyway, but uh, there's a different crisis than there was in 2008 that's being responded to. And and the consequence of that is that it appears that the response is more, is less regressive and more populist. But again, that's just, that's just the nature of the, of the crisis itself determining the outcome. Well, I mean, like the areas in which Joe Biden and the executive branch have like the, the freest hand to do the most good with the least amount of friction or opposition from like po- the political process and, and, and also public will and sentiment are on things like immigration, which we touched on briefly, but also drug policy, which is going to be a huge part of Hunter Biden's memoir, obviously. But like <laughs> it, it seems like right now there is this kind of like critical mass or momentum for like legalizing marijuana. I mean, New York State just legalized it, which I genuinely thought I would never even live to see. And let's be honest, it only happened because Andrew Cuomo like can't keep his hands to himself and killed a few thousand elderly people at the behest of one of his campaign donors. It wouldn't have happened absent that. But it's sort of like, you know, there's like many major states have now fully legalized recreational cannabis. And at a federal level, like Joe Biden could deschedule it tomorrow with the stroke of a pen. And just out of forget what he believes, but out of any like sense of self-preservation, certainly in terms of the midterms or if he is going to run again in 2024, this would be an absolute no-brainer. But drug policy is something that Joe Biden apps genuinely is one of the few things I think he actually does believe in. And like as an architect of the war on drugs, I don't think I think he still genuinely believes in like the things that led him to pass, you know, like the crime bill and like mandatory minimum sentencing and the rave act and things like that. I don't think like he's shown any signs of changing that. But like, I mean, forget legalizing marijuana. Like, how about just decriminalizing all drugs? Because I'm I'm sick of these think of these these potheads, these dopers getting their own holiday when, you know, plenty of other drug users are out there and uh, they should be celebrated, too or at least not put in jail. Yeah, listen, I just want to be able to uh, take ketamine and listen to diurnal beats, inject my ass with ketamine and listen to diurnal beats uh, without worrying that uh, the cops are going to break down my door. Is that is that so much to ask, Mr. President? Yeah, I hope that they legalize binaural beats. <laughs> 
It's illegal to listen to them because they get you high. <laughs> yeah, I, I, he's, I mean, look, Mac, we don't want to send people to prison. We, we got to send them to rehab. You know, I, I think it's <laughs> mandatory. <like> a, <laughs> mandatory rehab. Yeah, yeah it's just, it, it's just a building that you have to go to and can't leave or else you'll be shot. But you know, other than that, it's, it's a, it's a drug rehab. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. Man- the main thing about American rehabs, though, is they're really effective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, so, and, like, even if you couldn't leave, it's like there's a guaranteed thirteen uh, percent chance that it will work. Well, well, I mean, like, like we said, uh, drugs are a huge part of uh, Hunter Biden's memoir, and Hunter as a as a character, like a sort of an ancillary figure in the Biden administration. I mean, like, uh, like Jacob, what do you make of the like the the huge gulf between how punitive Joe Biden has been as a drug warrior and the like fantastic heroic excess and drug habits of his son. You wish that you could find almost something more interesting to say about it than it is the absolutely sort of standard hypocrisy of basically everyone who has sort of um, chosen these kind of like moral or cultural uh, issues on which to draw a line in the sand. Um, But, you know, it's, it's, it's basically the old kind of uh, the sort of definition of conservatism, you know, which is that, you know, there needs to be a, a class of people who the law, uh, ha- how does it go, whom the law um, protects but does not bind, and a class of people whom the law binds but does not protect, and the children of U.S. senators and presidents are um, in the former in the former category, you know, they're to be uh, protected from the misbehavior and wiles of the drug-addled underclass, you know, whether it's whether it's uh, meth and fent addicts, hooten down in the hollers or, or, or urban crack addicts or whatever other kind of uh, drug uh, boogeyman is, is sort of conjured up by the political class, while at the same time, you know, the, the, their own children are to be accorded a, a sort of uh, endless series of, of passes, endless opportunities to um, sort of medicalize their own addiction and rehabilitation journeys, um, which is obviously preferable to the uh, carceral alternative. And, and uh, you know, in the case of someone like Hunter Biden, I mean, it's it, in his case, it's not even simply a matter of private addiction because his addictions actually had, you know, manifest real world, you know, uh, career, personal and, and legal consequences, all of which he's been shielded from. So, so it, it's an even greater hypocrisy because it's not simply a matter of saying, well, I, you know, I believe that uh, a person should go to jail for possessing crack cocaine if they're in the inner city. But if I catch my kid smoking pot, you know, we'll look the other way. You know, it's I believe that a person should go to jail for uh, smoking crack in the inner city. And also, I believe that my son should be protected from going to jail for smoking crack in the inner city. You know, it's, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, they're precisely parallel. Um, and, and, and I, I don't know what to make of it. It, it, it's a, it's such a yawning, uh, hypocrisy that it, 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 it's impossible to, to almost intuit your way into the mindset that allows that, uh, to persist, um, except to say that they simply have a, like, truly neo-feudal view of the world where there is this, a, a simply different laws for different classes of people. Well, I mean... That, that that's a that's a tough thing, and it's one we sort of uh, grappled with on this show. Like, in spite of this, you know, yawning, screaming hypocrisy, and like the the brutal reality of which it like you know covers for. What is it about Hunter Biden that, despite all of that, remains somewhat charming and likable? 
Like you should like it, it should not be possible to like Hunter Biden as a person. But like there's something about him that he manages to skate out of the even those consequences of being hated by people like reading reviewing his book. He's just such a he's just such a genial dope. Um uh, he's I mean, and it comes across in his book, um, which you know, very clearly had a ghostwriter, um, but he, but much more so than most sort of political memoirs or celebrity memoirs does actually seem to possess like some degree of the voice of the person who is ostensibly its own author. Um, and, and he, he really is this sort of, you know, charmed frat boy who the, the guy, he's like the jock who's nice to the nerds in the TV show, you know, the, the abusive cool guy who also has a soft spot for the losers um, there who is himself very nearly a loser, you know, just sort of like clinging by the power of his ability to party to, to the click of the popular kids while really being at heart, you know, a freak or a geek. Um, And and (laughs) something about that uh, suggests a kind of, I don't know, genuineness that all of these other like like Chelsea Clinton, for instance, or Joe Manchin's daughter, or Meghan McCain, <laughs> or just like go down the you know, Abby Huntsman, just go down the list of these 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 high achieving morons and fucking uh, you know parasites who you know don't have or at least uh, you know openly have drug addiction problems. Yeah, he doesn't. He 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 does not come across um, as a person who simply understood from the beginning you know, that he was going to follow this kind of particular path, whether he was going to actually go into politics himself or more likely like someone like, whether it's Chelsea Clinton or Meghan McCain, who are two fascinatingly parallel figures to sort of um, construct this sort of ersatz sort of media presence. And that was sort of just going to be their job, you know, maybe write a children's book or something. You know, he, he, he sort of um, started out thinking that he was going to do something involving public service. And then he just kind of became that guy, you know, he's the he's the equivalent of, you know, in a mid-sized city, the the dumb kid who inherits his dad's, you know, Chevy dealership and and kind of thinks it's because he's good at selling cars. He just, you know, he he loves to party, loves to hang out, uh, loves to thinks of himself as like a bit of a poet or an intellectual, you know, likes to read Bukowski and shit and uh uh, and then kind of gets these jobs and thinks, hey, it's because I'm charming and it's because I'm cool. And yeah, my dad kind of opened the door. I mean, sure, people know who he is. But, you know, really, it's because, like, I'm good at pressing the flesh. And, uh, you know, and again, there's a there's a charmingly um, there's a charming authenticity to it, even if you understand that it's all uh, it's all papered over by this extraordinary level of delusion about why it is that he keeps getting hired to do things and why it is that uh, they don't kick him out of the hotel when he's been there for six weeks, uh, hold up with hookers and drug dealers, smoking crack and breaking bottles and throwing mini fridges into the pool. You know, it just doesn't occur to him that that's not just sort of the way things work. <laughs> he just thinks that's that's the universe. And maybe... So, so- in detail, because this is what interested me the most about this book, is like Hunter Biden working for Bursima or any of those other companies, really, like what that's always the joke. Oh, I mean, say what you will about the guy, but he knows so much about the Ukrainian national gas industry or natural gas industry. He, is that it? He just says it's because he's personable. 
So like that's a perfect example. So like with the, with that Barisma stuff, you know, he he taught he actually dedicates an entire chapter in the book to it. And and actually, I will say he's he's kind of the the a lot of it is about sort of debunking, or or at least a portion of it is about debunking. You know, kind of the the Trump world accusations against him and against his father, and the accusations that this was all part of a, some sort of you know corrupt deal to influence uh, some sort of Ukrainian prosecution. And I will say. He is himself kind of um, Felix Biederman pilled because he's like, like, oh, they're talking about these guys named Lev Parnas. I don't even know who the fuck these people are. How can, any, how can anybody remember all of these names? What the fuck is anybody good, talking about? Good defense. <laughs> but honestly, yeah. But he does, you know, the case he makes is he effectively says, well, hey, look, you know, I worked for these financial companies and I worked for the uh, Department of Commerce and I started my own venture firm and I sat on all of these uh, nonprofit boards. And so really throughout my career, I became an expert on governance. And so despite what, despite what Trump says about me, I, I never claimed to be an expert on the Ukrainian energy sector. Rather, they hired me to be on this board because they wanted to not just be some little regional company, you know, in the former Soviet sphere, they wanted to be a true uh, player uh, as an international firm. And so they needed people who were experts in corporate governance and corporate compliance and Western legal structures so that they could seek out, you know, uh, you know, legal above board business partnerships, investments in the Western markets, you know, develop foreign investment and so forth and so on. So now, that's all preposterous on its face because because Biden Hunter Biden is not actually an expert on governance in anything. He he sat on a nonprofit board for a, a food and agriculture organization that helps with a UN program. You know he's not some academic expert on on corporate governance or on nonprofit governance. He just sort of bounced his way into those into those positions and postings on the strength of his own name. But he doesn't know that. He thinks he I, I truly it, it believe he earnestly thinks that, you know, he kind of got those jobs on his own merits because because he's likable and personable and he's good at closing a deal. And that that therefore led him to be an ideal candidate for this type of foreign company that's really looking to go straight. They might have had a, you know, some questionable feelings <laughs> in the past, but they're they're trying, uh, you know, they're trying to do the Michael Corleone thing and they're trying to take yeah. the family legit. Senators and presidents don't have men killed. I mean, in five years, the Corleone family is going to be completely legitimate. And he's going to help them do it. And I, he, he, is that, is that self-flattery on his part? Oh yeah, it's 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 an extraordinary degree of self flattery. Is it earnest? Is he being honest about it? Uh, yeah, I, I think he truly believes it. He's a classic bullshitter. He cannot distinguish between. Uh, he's not lying instrumentally. He just can't distinguish between the sort of truth and fiction of his own self presentation. Yeah, and to that end, I want to I want to read uh, one one section from your review here that I think uh, s- s- sums up a lot of his character. Uh, you write here, uh, Hunter is also almost entirely without guile. When he reapplies to Yale Law School after initially being rejected, he is convinced it was a poem he submitted with his application that ultimately sealed his acceptance. Quote, <laughs> Yale's acceptance letter noted that my success and dedication more than qualified me, he writes, but that my poem was unlike anything they'd ever received. I'm sure that part is true. Like, it has to 
I don't think there were a lot of Hunter-esque poems that they received. <laughs> well, that... Um, that do, we, comes... wait, wait, do, do we know what the poem is? Does he include the poem no, in the no, memoir? No. Oh, God he, damn it. He, he, makes, he makes a lot of reference um, uh, th- throughout the book, actually, to his sort of artistic um, aspirations. He has, he has many vague artistic aspirations, and including, you know, being a writer. I mean, in fact, at one point, you know, he's like, oh, I was accepted to the MFA program at Syracuse. Um, and I was going to go there for law school, and I was going to get a joint law degree with an MFA, which is perhaps the most <laughs> yeah. complicated thing that anyone has ever imagined in their in their life. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna go to law school and get a poetry degree at the same yeah, time. At the same I'm gonna time, be a, yeah. it's like a it's like a warrior poet. I'm gonna be a lawyer poet. This is like that's what I've always liked about him is he's like. Um, if you defeated the final boss of the USA Network and were awarded the USA Network soul and transposed it, it would be Hunter. He's a combination of every USA Network show. Yeah, he's, the, I mean, he's the exact mix of like <laughs> corniness and like beauty or handsomeness and uh, why, and like unreality that I, makes up the USA Network. Yeah, I mean, he so right before he gets into law school um, for the first time, because he actually ends up going to law school originally at Georgetown and then it's actually on the strength of going to Georgetown for a year that he then reapplies to Yale and gets in. It's not the poem. It's because he, he, he did a remedial year at a, at a slightly less uh, prestigious institution, and then they, they, then they let him slide in after that because, you know, he's the child of one of the most prominent politicians in America, even at the time, you know, which was in the 90s, I guess. You know, his dad was a senator. So, um, but... Um, so, so just before that, he kind of does like a, ga- a post-collegiate gap year where he goes to a some kind of like Jesuit volunteer organization out um, in the Pacific Northwest in Portland. He claims to be, <laughs> he claims to adopt liberation theology. Um, <laughs> wait, can I, can I, can I just like read you like yes, uh, please, three paragraphs please. from this book? Yeah, um, please. So... So this is actually also where he met his first wife, Kathleen Buell. So he's just met uh, Kathleen and he's explaining it. He says, "Um, we'd met during orientation. There were three Jesuit volunteer houses in Portland, each with six to eight volunteers. We'd all get together all the time. We'd pool our food resources for potlucks and sit around and talk for hours. We came from schools all over the country. Kathleen graduated from St. Mary's in Minnesota but we were like-minded in our idealized devotion to social justice and making the world a better place. <laughs> you're going to hold, hold on to your, hold on to your butts, people. There was tremendous camaraderie. Our heroes were the six Jesuit priests murdered in 1989 in El Salvador. Oh, we, wow. we, no, dude. We, we adopted the liberation theology that they preached, radical within the Catholic Church mainstream, which emphasized social and political concern for the poor and oppressed. We were inspired by the activist pair, Touch Me With The Truth, what, that burns like fire. It felt freeing. Living 3,000 miles from where I grew up, I almost felt like I had escaped the person everyone back there expected me to be. I was more confident, felt closer to my authentic self. I grew a beard, wore a leather jacket, (laughs) (laughs) rode the bus, rode the bus. I'd sit in Powell's books with enough money for an endless cup of coffee, then go to Nobby's and drink nickel draft beers. I read everyone, from John Fante to Aldous Huxley to Lao Tzu. 
My favorite novel of all time is Charles Bukowski's Post Office about a down and out bar fly, a bleak omen in retrospect of where my life would one day land. Oh my God. Okay, never mind. He's not the USA Network. This is if Ron Donald was hot. Like if Ron Donald was like the vice president's son and hot. This is exactly what he'd be like. He already has Ron Donald's huge dinger. But he's like. I mean, what are they going to say about me? Here lies Ronald Wayne Donald. Repeated first grade because he couldn't figure out scissors. First in his class to master a keg stand. Partied for 20 years. Ran a soup place for five months. Never did anything. Never won anything. Never mattered. Now he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... You know, so but you can see in that passage, like what I mean about, you know, I, I guess about him being sort of like, like totally without without guile in his self presentation, just to be like, uh, yeah, you know, uh, the our heroes were the victims of the Elmsdale massacre. Uh, we 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 were liberation theologists um, while we were all hanging out in Portland, um, all living in a group home for the graduates of uh, private schools. <laughs> <laughs> they called him the Oscar Romero of Wilmington, Delaware. Does he, does he like, does he ever go into like what he likes about liberation theology or like even what it is? No, no. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, of course not. No, uh, uh, just, he's like liberation theology, you know, it's about social justice and, and that's, and then we never, we never hear about it. Ever, I'm sur- ever again. <laughs> I mean, I just someone, some, someone on on the right or like Trump's Oppo team should have found something about liberation theology and tried to make a stink out of it during the during the last election. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, Hunter, Hunter I, Biden I, is being proselytized to by the anti pope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's it, there's it's just like a serene kind of kind of self. Uh, unawareness that that goes on on throughout the whole thing, and, and you have to love that reading list too. Uh, uh, yeah, John Fante, uh, uh, Aldous Huxley, and Lao Tzu. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's really um, remarkable. A, a few of the other jobs that that you you list <laughs> Hunter occupying is a uh, there is a um, uh, was it uh, NBNA is uh, mentioned, which was a what what is it a, like a uh, NBNA is like one of the huge banks in Delaware, right? Yeah, they were they were they were a big a big Delaware-based bank, um, and uh, they were a major issuer of uh, consumer credit cards for for a long right. time, and and then eventually they got bought up, I think, by Bank of America. Um, yeah, so but, but Hunter Hunter gets to participate in in MBNA's the bank's executive management training program while yeah. working for his father's reelection campaign, and then you you mentioned he does not mention the hundred thousand dollar retainer that the MBNA reportedly gave him while his father was coincidentally hard at work on the bankruptcy bill. Yeah, that and that happened that happened years later. I mean. So, one of the things about this book is that the timeline is all jumbled up, so it, it, it's. Some of that is intentional because it's got these like literary pretensions. Um, yeah, you 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 said he sort of like is aping at sort of like a pulp fiction, like Tarantino style, kind of like fractured uh, narrative that jumps around in time. Yeah, it, it's you kind of like I mean the the book begins with the sort of with the death of his brother Bo, his older you know his beloved, uh, more successful chip, chip off the old block, uh, beautiful blue eyed uh, older brother Bo. 
and, and then it sort of then it, then it, it sort of moves forward and backward in time to like their childhood and then into these kind of like uh, you can't <laughs> you won't believe how I got here where he's you know hold up at the petite Hermitage in LA uh, smoking crack uh, 24 hours a day um, and then and then back to his college experience it's, it's a little hard to follow the narrative but he 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 works at M- MBNA r- right out of law school while also working on his dad's campaign. And, and he works there for a couple of years, and then he, he goes off and does other things. And then, and then many years later, they just pay him $100,000 as a consulting fee or a consulting retainer right in the middle of his father um, pushing through this bankruptcy bill, which, um, as I, you guys, I'm, I'm sure know, uh, you know, made it vastly more difficult for in individual uh, filers to, to file for personal bankruptcy. Um, and, and among other things, if we want to talk about a particular contemporary issue, um, is one of the laws that basically made it impossible to discharge student debt in bankruptcy. Right. So in addition to making it harder to, to file for bankruptcy to begin with, it also basically said, oh, and by the way, even if you do, you still have to pay back your student loans. And, and, you know, this is MBNA was, uh, you know, so tied to Biden that didn't Biden at one point, like, sort of say half jokingly, I'm not the senator from NBNA, meaning like he, Delaware. Yeah. I, ironically, I looked up the origin of that accusation and it actually appears to have originated in the National Review. <laughs> nice. It's sort of funny to think about. Um, but then it, it, yeah, then it sort of became a, a, a sort of byword for, for Joe Biden. Um, you know, who, of course, is a senator from Delaware, which is where, you know, like half of the Fortune 500 It's just a credit card company. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a credit card company. Well, it's, yeah, it's the DuPont family combined <laughs> yeah. with the credit card company uh, masquerading the be- in the state. <laughs> really and the best the way, America has to offer. Yeah, I, I mean. Yeah, we we drove through there once and it was like. The residents of Delaware are clipping through the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, like we saw standing we, around waiting to have uh, to give you a mission. Yeah, no, and then not even good missions. It's like uh, find twenty feathers and give them to me. <laughs> like we saw a guy who is uh, just in overalls facing the street with his mouth open, <laughs> seemingly had been there for days. Well, so speaking of Delaware and of its two, its two major um, like. Uh, financial pillars, which is the um, credit card and commercial finance and consumer finance industry and the DuPont family. Um, uh, another, another gem is where um, he, he's constantly talking about how middle class they are. Um, and he tells the story of how, you know, they were a staunchly middle class family. Um, but the home that they had in uh, Wilmington, Delaware was a, a, a pr- like pre-revolutionary war fixer upper that they, that had, Previously, quote unquote, previously been owned by the Dupont family, which suggests, <laughs> <laughs> which like suggests that they probably just somehow gave it to Joe. Yeah. It's like never exactly, um, yeah, that's odd how they got it. <laughs> well, that that's always been a Joe thing. Is he's he's always been like, well, you know, I, I don't, I'm not like all these other fancy senators. My thing is, I just love houses. <laughs> And like, just he's there's always been this thing of like rich guys giving Joe deals on like thirteen bedroom houses, <laughs> like the place he lives in now is one of those. But uh, it's great to see Hunter carries on the tradition of living in probably some like ten thousand square foot travesty and being like, yeah, it's a fixer upper. Oh well, uniquely American thing making four hundred thousand dollars a year and being like, yeah, I'm middle class. 
Yeah, he he does that. It, there there are several expensive houses in the book. I mean, it, when right after he graduates from law school, he's like, "Well, we were really strapped for cash because we had all these student loans, you know, but we needed to live the the lifestyle of all these, you know, well-to-do professionals who were surrounding us." And we quickly got in over our heads, you know, with a million-dollar mortgage, and and he kind of goes goes on to talk about, you know, how they couldn't afford this lifestyle. But then you you're like, "Wait, back up. How, how this is like in the." in the 90s, right? So this is 25 years ago. How did you get a million dollar mortgage, you know, right out of law school with with apparently not really even a job, except you were a junior executive in training at some finance firm? And it's like, none of that stuff is ever quite explained. And on the one hand, you know, if this were a traditional political memoir, I would assume that that was a sort of deliberate choice to sort of like just kind of gloss that stuff over in the interest of projecting an image as an everyman. But I, I think that that Hunter was so like um, cosseted and protected by his family that he, he just like doesn't, he just doesn't know that that's not normal <laughs> to just stumble into a million dollar mortgage on some giant house. I just want to return briefly to uh, some of the jobs Hunter Biden has had and just to read from your review here. Uh, you write, Hunter then embarks on a series of jobs that only the misfit son of a U.S. senator might hold. He accepts a gig at the Department of Commerce. He found some kind of consultancy come private equity firm called Rosemont Seneca Partners with Devin Archer, a, quote, super motivated former college lacrosse player who would later be convicted of securities fraud and conspiracy. And Chris Hines, the son of philanthropist Teresa Hines Carey and the late Senator John Hines, the stepson of John Carey and one of the heirs to the Pittsburgh's Hines family fortune. Along the way, Hunter goes to a celebrity residential rehab program in Antigua, although he has at pains to emphasize he had a roommate and made his own bed. Uh, so, <laughs> so wait, first of all, w- uh, would you like to, would you like to know who who founded the celebrity rehab center in Antigua that he went to? Oh, of course, e- Eric Clapton. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Um, the, the bastard yeah. of building himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, Eric uh, Clapton also got into liberation theology after certain comments he made at a concert in England in the seventies. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, that's right. Um, that no, noted he, he racial. Had a, he had a come to Jesus. Uh, Eric Clapton, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Biden immigration advisor, Eric Clapton. <laughs> um, well, uh, the the Devin Archer story. I, I I didn't dig into this one too much. I. I I didn't have time, unfortunately, when I was writing the review. But um, the the scam that he ran was a uh, was a particularly Sopranos esque scam where he he was he was doing some kind of fraudulent bond trading, u- utilizing some kind of economic incentives that were um, that were supposed to be directed at um, at Indian tribes and reservations. Um, so it, it was some kind of like weird Indian casino scam that he ran to the, to the tune of like $60 million and he ended up getting, um, uh, convicted of it and then having his, uh, conviction like mysteriously vacated upon appeal and then reinstated upon a subsequent appeal by the prosecution. So, um, he's, he's a really interesting shady character. He's also the guy who I, I believe, um, originally set, um, Biden up with some of his international connections, including um, uh, some of the stuff in the former Soviet sphere and some of the stuff that he was later involved in um, in uh, in the People's Republic of China. What what is the book? How does the book portray Hunter's relationship with Bo, who was like the the good son? 
Like he he was the heir apparent, and I remember like it was like I think Nick Mullen on Come Down was just talking about how Joe Biden naming his son Bo is like basically just naming him Joe. It's just like <laughs> <laughs> it's just Bo is that's just me. And then you know like the way he dies tragically, I was just like the Bo was leading the life that like Hunter was not suited for, but then tried to adopt for himself, and then ended up marrying his widow. There's there's a lot going on here, Jacob. Like, how what accounts for he this? Da- he dated the widow. I okay, don't, dated uh, the widow. He, okay, they, all right. Yes, they 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 uh they were clinging to love, cl- clinging to the raft of mutual love, like two survivors of a shipwreck. Um, a- after the death of their mutually beloved beau. I mean, look, uh, uh, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, <laughs> but sometimes you want to have sex with your more successful older brother. <laughs> and I, 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 I cannot emphasize enough how um, oddly eroticized the portrayal of Bo is in this book. How the, just the deep, piercing blue pools of his eyes are constantly being referenced. How, how everyone is just kissing each other all the time and how I, I mean in a in a very it's very macabre but you know basically um hunter describes sort of sitting by Bo's deathbed in effect as what Bo is dying from from very aggressive brain cancer and, it, and the depiction is actually pretty harrowing and, and and fairly effectively done i will say um it, it's not it's not a terrible portrayal, and yet, as it progresses, you you increasingly just sort of think to yourself, this does not describe a an adult brother sitting beside the bedside of his dying brother. This describes a spouse sitting beside the bedside of their dying husband or or, or wife. And Haley, who is the the wife of Bo, who, who later does become romantically involved with Hunter, is kind of like absent from that, from those scenes. Like it's always Hunter there by Bo's bedside or Hunter there like sleeping in the same bed with him in a hotel room while they're waiting for the next round of aggressive experimental therapy. And, and there is just something bizarrely erotic about that depiction. And then of course it is it is ultimately Bo's death that is so shatteringly tragic to uh, Hunter that basically his marriage falls apart and he embarks upon his uh, sort of deepest round of, you know, just complete uh, degenerate, uh, you know, addiction and alcoholism and, and disappearance from the world. And, and, and all of those descriptions are just really weird because, again, I mean, I, you know, one... Is it, I, I, hey, Jacob, I, is it, is it... Is it Haley or is it another woman he gets involved with where he makes a point of talking about how her piercing blue eyes reminded him of his brother? No, that is the South, the white South African princess uh, documentary <laughs> filmmaker, Melissa, who he meets who he in LA. tattoo for. <laughs> Are they still together? Because I really... If those two could make it work, I don't know if there's any hope for any of them. <laughs> well, they're, they are they are apparently still together, and they, they do okay. have a son who was born in 2020. I, I think it's uh, they have a child. I shouldn't say it's a son. I can't remember if it's a son or a daughter, but they have a child together. Um, and he, even the, their meeting is extremely weird um, because, like, Hunter is, is truly, like, not really even coming out of a relapse. I mean, he's still, like, deep in a relapse, and, like, some L.A. friends 
somehow hook him up with this manic pixie dream Afrikaner. Um, and, and like their first date, he like goes to her hotel room and it's just so wiped out from having spent the last like six months just smoking crack 23 hours a day that he just falls asleep in her lap for 12 hours. <laughs> That's like, and then I woke up and there date. she was holding my head. <laughs> I knew it was the woman for me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like. Yeah, if, if 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 a woman is still doing that after twelve hours, and that's your first date, uh, that's that's wifey right there. But and he, it sounds like going by the timeline, it seems like he got her pregnant immediately <laughs> after. Just knocked it out of the park, first shot. Yeah, just oh, stepped I up mean, to the plate. Look, his marriage to his first wife happened because he like he just not he just immediately knocked her up. I mean, what, whatever else you can say about the guy, his his uh, he's got some Olympic swimmers. He has got all of the uh, motile sperms that everybody else in that generational cohort lost. Yeah, no, all he, concentrated in Hunter Biden's ball sack. Probably, <laughs> probably like due to chemicals Dupont was putting in the water. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, that was the deal they made with the Biden yeah. family. It's yeah. like, look, we're going to sterilize the U.S. population. Is that okay? <laughs> Yeah, sure, but we better be able to keep pumping out Max back. <laughs> <laughs> they, they gave them the antidote to like those complex carbon chains that are just never yeah. going to leave the body of any living thing as long as yeah, the planet we're, we're, fucking the sun burns out. We are, we are living in the future. Children of, come on, men. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let, let, I want to I want to get to the uh, the bit of magical realism and his encounter with a with an owl on like a like a lonely road at night. But like, uh, like how how unsparing is the book like in depicting like his, his the actual level of his like cocaine addiction? Uh, he's. He's 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 fairly unsparing about it, but he cannot escape from the desire to sort of like, um, ironically, I guess uh, he shares the first name to sort of do the Hunter S. Thompson thing where it's sort of like it's he on the one hand, you know, he's constantly like, you know, I was totally, you know, he's very young. He's got some of the kind of recovery self-help language down. You know, I was totally depraved. I was doing all this stuff. I didn't, you know, I was harming people around me. You know, I was lying. I was cheating. I was, I was, I was a bad person. I was, I was not able to control my addiction. You know, he's, he's, he's he speaks in that language and, 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 uh, to, and I think some of it is genuine, but he can't resist the urge also, you know, to do the, you know, like we were just outside of Barstow when the, when the drugs kicked in kind of thing as well. Um, and so, you know, he, he can't help but also sort of populate the sort of addiction memoir parts of the book with, you know, all of the, the wacky characters and ne'er-do-wells and, and, and outrageous hijinks and, you know, then it's sort of, uh, you know, Tucker Max, hope they serve beer in hell, you know, nobody could drink as much as me, nobody could smoke as much crack as me, I just, my, my, my capacities were so, so superhuman. And so, um, so his depiction of, of drug addiction and of his addiction is at once, you know, sort of harrowing and also very, very silly and clearly inflected by all sorts of popular culture that he imbibed at the same time that he was uh, doing these Herculean amounts of uh, coke and crack and vodka. We, we can't stop here. This is Mac country. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, he's, he, he, 
decides to go to rehab again at some, at, at some point. And he, like, he is supposed to fly out to Arizona to meet this sober friend of his in Prescott, Arizona, at some at another residential rehab uh, place. And then he basically, like, uh, goes to the airport, um, smokes a bunch of crack in his car, misses all of his flights, and decides, well, I'll just, like, drive cross-country to get there. Then he somehow ends up out in L.A. While he's out in L.A., he holes up in a series of hotels, hanging out with a drug dealer named Curtis, and Curtis's friend Honda, a former surfer who broke all of his bones and then ended up becoming a car thief. That's why he's called Honda, because he likes to boost Hondas. Um, and, uh, you know, and a gang of prostitutes and models and God only knows who else who are Milk and Hunter for his credit cards and hanging out uh, with him um, at uh, fancy hotels in L.A. And then finally he decides, you know, once again, I'm going to make it to Arizona. And he embarks upon this road trip while still doing drugs. Uh, he gets in a uh, terrifying car wreck. <laughs> where he, like, jumps a median, flips his car over, ends up on the wrong side of a highway, gets pulled over by a state trooper who's like, ah, well, these things happen, see ya. <laughs> you know, doesn't, doesn't, like, doesn't breathalyze him. Doesn't, you know, it's like in the middle of the night on some lonely desert highway. He's just like, oh, well, what are you going to do? You know, these things happen. People fall asleep at the wheel. And then eventually he, uh, he, he he's, like, chain smokes through the night, um, starts driving up through the mountains because I guess Prescott is kind of um, up in the mountains. And he says, let's see if I can find this passage for you. To stay awake, I chain-smoked crack and cigarettes, kept the windows down, and leaned into the bracing night air whenever I felt myself nodding off. At some point, the crack lost Beautiful. its oomph, but I kept lighting up the email out of force of habit. Sometimes I just slapped myself in the face. As I peered ahead into the into the pitch blackness, at times hunched so far forward, my chest bumped against the steering wheel. An enormous barn owl suddenly swooped over my windshield as if dropped straight from the inky night sky. I looked on in stunned wonder. It glided over the car's hood until it was caught in my high beams. I didn't know if it was a real if it was real or hallucination, but it sure as hell woke me up. Then, as abruptly as it arrived, the bird swerved off to the right. Just out of the range of my headlights, I your birds do be doing that. Yeah, I swerved <laughs> with it to stay on the road, and it led me cleanly around a sharp bend. It disappeared for a few minutes after that, as the road straightened, before reappearing again with its massive wings, tilting first one way and then another, guiding me through a series of tight, bounding switchbacks. I just kept following. It did the same thing four or five times, disappearing, returning, gliding through dips and rises and hairpin turns at full speed like a stunt plane at an air show, all but beckoning me to stay close behind. I'm not sure how long I followed the owl, but it finally led me straight into Prescott. As it flapped off into the star-smeared sky, I shook my head and mouthed a a soundless, still-disbelieving thank you over (laughs) and over again. (laughs) Uh, That's nice. I mean, who who wouldn't want to encounter an owl? I mean, they're wonderful. Yeah, we love owls. <laughs> they are they are marvelous creatures. The owls are not what they seem. I guess finally, I like you. You, you mentioned in the review that that his father, Joe Joe Biden, is not really a major figure in this book, and to the extent that he is, it's sort of like Hunter defending Joe Biden against 
various charges made against him because of Hunter's own behavior. Hmm. Yeah, I, he's it's not to, it's not necessarily that Biden is not a major figure, but he's an he's an off stage figure. You know, he's he's like he's, he's like a Don Giovanni kind of thing going on. You know, he's like the spectral Potter familias always looming over everything that the, that the sun does. Um, and, and yeah, you know, Hunter is it, is it pains to defend him from, you know, the accusations that he, you know, he plagiarized a British labor politician, um, that, you know, accusations that he was in the, in the bag for, um, financial companies based in Delaware. Um, at, at one point he, he spends like several pages talking about how, you know, his father learned a, a lesson in his early days uh, in the Senate when he accused Jesse Helms of, you know, not caring about poor people and uh, being a racist, which, of course, Jesse Helms was a segregationist, <laughs> racist, horrible man. And Joe Biden gets uh, hauled before the, uh, at the then majority leader, uh, uh, Iron Mike Mansfield, who was this kind of august Democratic politician from the New Deal era, who tells him, you can question a person's interpretations, but you can never question their motives. Then he tells this po-faced story about how Jesse Helms, you know, adopted a poor child and then uh, eventually towards the end of his career supported uh, AIDS research in Africa. I I mean, it's all it's all when the presentation of Joe Biden is of this, you know, this precisely the sort of, you know, statesman of another era that he was supposed to be presented as in the campaign. And in some ways, it's like the least convincing part of the book, because it is the thing in the book that doesn't read as quite so genuine. It's the part where he talks about his father's political career that kind of sounds like it was probably massaged by the comms department for the the campaign or for the. Well, I mean, just like take, taken as a like a, as a whole. I mean, like despite um, how utterly deleterious and evil Joe Biden's public career as a politician and everything he's done to this country as, as a senator or whatever is like you know we don't need to go into that record. But is there something about the Biden family in particular that like? They do seem to genuinely love each other in a way that I don't feel from like other political families who like I, I think just view each other as basically like furniture. Yeah, there's there's a there's an old there's a line in um uh, in Angels in America where one of the characters is talking about the Reagan family and he says they're not a family they're a business and they only speak to each other through their agents, um, <laughs> which I always thought was like a really great um, description of political families in general. Um, yeah, I mean the Bidens do seem to have some kind of genuine affection for each other. And they seem to, there seems to be kind of a large extended Biden clan who appear at, at various points throughout the book, especially as, as, as Bo Biden is going through his last um, kind of tragic and, and painful days. Um, so it, so there is a sense that there is a genuine human affection between these people. And I guess that's refreshing. I mean, they don't seem like just a bunch of like, you know, weird, weird lizards who all happen to be part of the same brood. And, and that certainly separates them from, much of the political uh, class in America. Um, at, at the same time, th- there is a degree to which it's like they are sort of delusionally enacting a, a, a sort of imaginarium of what an actual loving extended family is like. Um, th- there's a degree to which it's like they're all starring in their own in their own melodrama, um, and and I I can't tell. It's hard to tell from the book, and I can't tell from from watching them in public, like 
if it's a deliberate put on that's just sort of calcified into reality, um, or if they're just they just sort of started out as a normal family and then you know just the the weirdness of American power and politics sort of injected itself into there and couldn't. Uh, eliminate their genuine affection, but just made it a little bit uh, weirder than it otherwise ought to be. You know, but like I said, this the, the the affection between the brothers in particular just seems um, completely strange and, and and like completely operatically uh, overdone from what you know the love between even two you know ordinary you know loving close siblings would be. Um, so. You know, they're certainly not the McCain's or the Bush clan or whatever, um, but uh, but there's still a degree of underlying weirdness that separates them, I think, from I don't know what a normal family is, a loving extended family of people who are not in the halls of power. I mean, I got to figure that that Joe fucked him up. I mean, the, like, there's just something about that, like that weepy, I love you, I love you my son thing that's got to just... It's got to create weird expectations, and and the thing is, like Bo, the good brother, the the gallant, was actually a demon. <laughs> yeah, he's way Moore worse Hunter, than Hunter, a way worse person in any meaningful way, uh, and and yet you know his evil is like uh, just metabolized into the family as as virtue. I mean, that's got to be that's got to mess you up. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's actually it, it one of the uh, sort of unintentionally I think revealing. Um, moment in the book is when um, so it's right after it's right after Bo dies and and Bo um, you know had been a prosecutor um, and or and it was in the attorney general's office in Delaware and you know was sort of the guy who was expected to uh, eventually basically inherit his father's seat um, in the Senate um, so so Bo and Bo dies, you know, and, and he was the one, he was the first son, he was the one who was going to inherit the kingdom, and everyone else was going to go off and, and do, you know, something subsidiary to that. And then he dies, and then in the in the car, uh, shortly thereafter, um, Hunter is riding with his first wife, and he, like, muses, and you can, I mean, she's already pissed off at him because he's a drunk, you know, and, a, and an addict at this point, but he kind of says, you know, I, I think... I'm thinking about going into politics, basically like, well, now that Bo is dead, somebody has to pick up the, has to pick up the scepter, has to carry on the family name. And it is at that precise moment where you learn in the narrative and then later learn in a therapy scene where she ends the marriage. She's like, (laughs) I'm leaving you right here. Like when she realizes that that, that family business is something that he's even beginning to contemplate. She's like, I'm out of here, <laughs> which maybe makes her the most sane and human person in the entire book. <laughs> um, but I think you're right, Matt. I think that I think that you know, being around this kind of like w- w- weepy Irishman, this this guy who you know, again, who kind of like spent his life um, uh, choosing not to drink, but nevertheless enacting every stereotype of you know the, the <laughs> yeah. sobbing Irish drunk at the bar um, has has got to have a bizarre psychic impact um, on on you as a child, you know, especially when he's gone most of the time. You know, he's, he's in Washington. You know, supposedly he's commuting back and forth and seeing them every night, but I don't know if I really believe that. Um, and, I mean, you know, like, so he's like, he's largely absent. The only time you see him is when tragedy strikes and he's around, you know, and he's bringing you to a funeral. Think about how fucked up that is. Like, your dad is never there. <laughs> 
he's like the dad in Field of Dreams, but instead of riding his motorcycle, he like his dream is to like shake hands with Sandy Wilde. <laughs> like he's but the only time you do see him, he like fucking tongue kisses you and you is like <laughs> You're the most handsome, special, beautiful sugar boy ever. You're my little apple pie. I want to eat you up. And you're like 37. This <laughs> is like all the only times he's ever talked to you have been like that. This is like what you would be like. Like this is combination of extreme neglect causing like insane attention seeking behaviors, but also like extreme over validation where it's like, I was briefly involved with The Shining Path uh, before I was a lawyer. <laughs> like, that's how, you, that's how you create someone like this. I do think it's uh, poignant that both Hunter and Don Jr. in their books have little tales of, of going off and imagining another life uh, and then just realizing that they don't have the, the will the vision, the, 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 the grit to actually fend for themselves and then just sort of shrug and go back uh, to the family. Because yeah. uh, Don Jr. has the thing about how he was going to, he, he like tended bar in the, the Rockies at a, like a ski resort. And he's like, yeah, man, this seems great. And then it's like, yeah, but at, you know, at a certain point, uh, you know, uh, the money runs out. And what are you going to do? And it's like, okay, I'm going back to get yelled at by my dad. I mean, and then the, you know, Hunter did the it, same thing. Yeah, I mean, if Hunter had been, if he had simply been the son of like the, um, you know, the third most successful general contractor in Scranton, Pennsylvania, you know, then he, I think he, he would have ended up in a different place, you know, because he would have just, uh, he would have just fixed up old houses and you know made made himself a million dollars and uh, you know drank a lot of beer and enjoyed you know. Uh, watching baby penguins hockey or something and in you know but instead he was the son of like the youngest u.s senator in history um and uh and the second son after yeah this kind of like uh human resume of of an older brother and, yeah you uh, mentioned in the review that like in in, in previous like uh, sort of ruling hierarchies like hunter biden would just join the priesthood or become like a soldier yeah they would have they, you know he wouldn't he wouldn't have stood to inherit so they would have just yeah they would have just given him something else to do he would, but, he would have joined the teutonic knights <laughs> yeah you know he would have been like one of those like you know when like one of the like uh, borgias or de medicis who became a pope had like 73 children and like all of the middle sons just they were like all right, well, here's like uh, 20 guys, some swords and some horses. So you're now in charge of uh, 20 square kilometers of the Italian peninsula. Go, 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 go do that. <laughs> Don't ever come back here. <laughs> he would have made a great one of those party monks who just get brewed beer and, and like had sex with local livestock. That would he would have yeah, loved that. Yeah, I, I mean, he'd still be him though because like he would be like they'd be doing monk shit, but he'd be like. Guys, I think I invented Taoism. <laughs> Be like, we live in Leipzig. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely imagine him uh, uh, drinking uh, one too many strong ales and then just imagining that one of the fantastical creatures in the margins of an illuminated manuscript is talking to him directly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking about making my own candle. <laughs> 
I, I, I will say that my prediction is that uh, at some point he and um, his new uh, his new wife um, are going to embark upon some sort of goopified, exified lifestyle brand endeavor. And I can't say exactly what it's going to be. I don't think that they're big enough for to get like a, a Netflix deal, but I could definitely imagine them getting like a, a maybe, a, I don't know, a Hulu special. I, I, I eagerly await the day. Uh, I think we can uh, wrap it up there. Jacob, though, before we go, is, is there any final passages from the book of Hunter that, that you would like to share with us? <laughs> oh, let's see. Um, sure. There's a great passage. It's a very brief one where uh, he um, he's in Washington and uh, he uh, meets uh, a, a, a street-dwelling um, a crack addict um, who <laughs> uh, who ultimately moves in with him in a kind of oh, I love this part. for a while. So um, uh, he's he's uh, looking at this point. He's in college and he's looking for crack somewhere around Capitol Hill. And he writes. Uh, he, this is where he first meets a person he calls bicycles, a- aka Rhea. Um, almost anyone who lives or works in D.C. has at one time or other seen Bicycles, also known as Rhea, a homeless middle-aged black woman weaving in and out of traffic or swerving around sidewalk pedestrians on a mountain bike that looks three times too big for her. She usually sports a backpack and a baseball cap and has a sharp, piercing voice that can be heard a block away as she shouts for everybody to get the hell out of her way, which she does almost continuously. Because I believe Rhea still lives on the streets, I'm using a pseudonym for her. (laughs) Okay, so what I absolutely love about this passage is that he describes this person in every particular, (laughs) including giving you the name that most people refer to her by on the streets or in in the sort of community of unhoused people. And then he says, "Uh, but I am using a pseudonym so nobody actually can identify her. I've described her physically. I've told you what kind of bike she rides. I've told you what her clothes look like. And I've told you her nickname. Uh, but Rhea is not her real name. And that to me is like just perfect hunter energy to like uh, do do everything wrong. And then in the end, with the best of intentions, <laughs> try to paper it over by doing some tiny little thing that is kind and right. Well, that's what's incredible is he sort of does the Jesse Helms thing. It's like, oh, you think I'm like a bad, frivolous guy who like got a lot of bullshit money? Uh, Well, I actually like let this homeless woman who like is probably homeless because of things my dad did. (laughs) But it's still like, unlike Jesse Helms, like this is like the thing I've always said about Hunter, and this is probably what we can bookend it with, is that. He is a unique American story in that he would like to be a good person and literally does not know how to. Yeah. Who would have never learned? Yeah. The thing that you can't learn in school that you have to learn from the people you grow up with, how to be a good person. I don't think anyone could have really taught him. Yeah. No one around him had had any of those chips in their head. Well, uh, that does it for us this week. I want to thank uh, Jacob Bacharach for joining us and spending some time here. And also the review is up at In These Times right now. And if you haven't done so already, uh, check out uh, Jacob's uh, novels, uh, The Bend of the World and The Doorposts of Your House and On Your Gates. I promise you, you will see a royalty check one day if you live long enough. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
Our pleasure. Cheers. Um, before we uh, head out, I'm just going to give one more plug. This is the last weekend to uh, pick up your tickets to the Frequency Festival to see us live streaming on June 5th. Those tickets will be $15 through the weekend or when the pre-sale sells out, whichever comes first. So get them now. FRQNCY.live. $15 for an all-day festival. Yeah, 10 different acts. That's a deal. You, you, Come on. You're losing Come on, money guys. not buying these tickets. Yes. All right, guys. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.